What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effing World Politics Review. If you're a fan of Undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, it's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the 25% discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train, wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. Peace. What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. We've got Kiara Mitchell, Gabby Magnuson, Pete McKenzie, and then Jake is going to show up at some point. We're recording this at like one in the afternoon, but I think he overslept. <laughs> He'll make a grand and blurry entrance. Yeah. <laughs> He's at his like third communist international meeting or something <laughs> so until jake arrives we uh there's actually like a shitload of things to hit in the uh the news space biggest one not not big actually they're all big is that last week kim jong-un made his first public appearance in uh several weeks so he's only been seen once since he was thought dead um, and that proved that he was not dead but then he disappeared again for several weeks and then he just showed up last week and he chaired a central military commission meeting. And the CMC is the um, like the Korean Workers Party apparatus that gives policy direction to the military. Because of that, it's very powerful. And then Kim Jong-un chairs it because in theory, he chairs everything. Realistically, he doesn't normally show up to meetings. All of these, like the, the institutions of the regime. So this was kind of a big deal because he announced at, not only because he showed up to like give guidance to this military commission, but in the meeting, he said that they're going to implement new policies to increase, quote, the nuclear war deterrence of the country. And it sounded from the way everything was phrased, like they're going down the path of tailoring coercion or developing capabilities that allow them to fight with nuclear weapons, but in a, like a calibrated way. So it's no longer just total annihilation or nothing. They're building in options along the escalation ladder so that they can actually use their nuclear weapons, which is, of course, disturbing. And it comes at a time when the British embassy in Pyongyang was closed down and evacuated, although presumably it's not. It, it's... Uh, COVID-19 related, like bureaucratic, not, uh, not, not because they were booted or something. But uh, the U.S. just announced a shitload of new sanctions on North Korea. 
and there was a the in within the Kim regime in North Korea there was a probe of the military that discovered all of this like gross corruption and a lack of readiness for war and there was and there was big currency fluctuations in North Korea the last couple of weeks so there's a lot of like precarity going on in North Korea right now and we're adding to it by adding new sanctions and then meanwhile we're not doing anything to discourage Kim Jong Un from developing more nukes better nukes so uh we're we're in a bad strategic situation right now in Korea also in the news this could be catastrophic but it also could be nothing which is that China moved some 5000 forces up toward its contested border with India and um they're digging trenches they're moving artillery it looks like an aggressive move there's been armed skirmishes there in the like very recent past even during the Trump administration and of course China and India fought uh, a little war there in 1962 and so this is like a ongoing thing but it's been a cold peace for a long time and it's heating up again and i i mentioned it on twitter because this is like obviously a big ongoing news story which is not actually getting that much coverage and i was saying that like okay is this about this is actually a good like foreign policy analysis question is this about china expressing revisionist intentions in general or just toward india or is it a sort of like chinese status quo seeking defensive intentions foreign policy that looks offensive because it's trapped in a security dilemma with india and then of course if this is an indicator that it has defensive versus offensive intentions that changes the kinds of policies that uh, we or india should use to stabilize the situation um but it's all very unclear but it's also very high consequence with india there's no commitment there from the united states there's not even like a hint of a commitment the united states is not there's no history there of like the united states backing india militarily so i mean it could change but through that frame i was thinking like okay well maybe you know china the pla is look has the, its eye on india as like its splendid little war because it's the place where it can fight uh and not worry about US intervention. I don't know that it's actually true. I'm just like thinking out loud, but it's worth considering and it's worth thinking about how we should evaluate Chinese behavior relative to India, especially if it ends up being that China and India do end up fighting a limited conventional war, god forbid a nuclear war. If China if China starts it in the context of an ongoing territorial dispute, what do we then ascribe to chinese motivations how do we interpret that that's like an ongoing question if it is just a limited territorial war what are the incentives for china to do that why not just continue to amass economic or soft power and slowly grow as a hegemon that way so that's the question so like taylor fravel and a few other like legit china security experts but who are also kind of like even tempered they're not hawks right their view is that china is like i had a a back and forth with taylor over the weekend his view their view is that china is trapped in a security dilemma not just with the united states but also with india over this uh like the line of actual control and the result of being in a security dilemma is like you feel compelled to take actions to secure yourself but it's a, because of the context inevitably it actually ends up like eroding your security by virtue of eroding the other guy's security and so their interpretation is that china has limited aims here at best 
um, but it feels like it needs to assert itself. What, what's missing, that could be, like I'm not challenging that at this point. What's missing for me there is the question that you're hinting at, which is like, why would China need to assert itself offensively under current circumstances? And even if India was a little bit provocative, big picture, what does Xi Jinping possibly get out of this when the big fight is with the U.S., right? Mm. The big fight yeah. is Taiwan. It, for China's strategic calculations, like India border dispute would be small potatoes. What I'm saying is like, that's a very long way of saying that's a good question, but it's a question that I feel like doesn't have a great answer if China is a defensive yeah. state. And so jury's out, but I'm I'm like rubbing my chin, questioning, like raising an eyebrow about this notion that it's a security dilemma situation. That's pretty rare though, in the context of analysis, right? A border, an open conflict between two nuclear powers. Well, so India and like, Pakistan fought the- Instead of a proxy combat. Yeah, India and Pakistan fought uh, the Cargill War in 1999, and they both mm. had nukes. But I know I know people who are U.S. policymakers who were like South Asia experts at that time, and they're the way they tell it, Pakistan was going to use nuclear weapons, and it was only because of relationships that U.S. Um, Asia hands had reaching into ISI and reaching into Islamabad wow. to like restrain them while using shuttle diplomacy to also restrain India. It was U.S. Sure. sort of like brokering, buffering between the two that made it possible for the both sides to step, like de-escalate. But um, the way they tell it, nuclear use was about to happen. It's just that theoretically it's not supposed to, right? Mutually assured destruction or yeah. mutual vulnerability. Yeah. yeah. On another note, the way that you opened that topic, Ben, uh, it could be nothing, but it could be catastrophic. Does seem like the tagline for all of geopolitics at the moment. I was going to say that's 2020 in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, um, and then one more tragic uh, statement or piece of news. So uh, a buddy of mine, Dan Snyder, he he lectures at Stanford, but he's like, uh, I think he hangs his hat in Tokyo or something. But he writes for this Japanese like business daily called Toyokezai that gets uh, syndicated in a lot of other places. He had this piece where he had actually investigated the um, escalation of words and escalation of actions between the US and China and the growth of what he's characterizing as like this anti-China rhetorical campaign in Washington. It's a good piece. I'll try to put it in show notes if I can remember. But the big thing that I got was shocking to me in this piece was that the Hudson Institute, which is a a MAGA conservative think tank in Washington. It used to be a legit think tank, and it's drifting more and more MAGA ever since the Trump era. Uh, and it, it basically hired uh, Scooter Libby, the guy who leaked Valerie Plame's, um, the CIA, covert CIA agent's name to the public, and then for the buildup of the Iraq war, so he was like making up narratives and he leaked a covert officer's name, which is illegal. And then he had to get pardoned by the Bush administration. So he didn't go to jail. Very scandalous. Asshole. Yes. Big. This guy's a big problem. And he he got hired as like the vice president of MAGA Institute, Hudson Institute. And he is he's he's not a China expert, but he is a makeup shit to go to war expert. And he's been writing in conservative outlets, which is why I didn't know about it, because how much time do I spend reading that fucking propaganda? He he fucking <laughs> is on a campaign making the case for war with China without quite explicitly declaring war on China. He's literally saying in some pieces in like the National Review and other outlets, 
if you go on the Hudson Institute website, they have like his running commentaries. He's saying we need to judge China and the threat that it poses on more than just the evidence that's available. The evidence, <laughs> the evidence that you would need to justify war will only come when it's too late, right? Holy fucking shit. I want to show, it's like shout out to Dan Snyder for like uncovering this for the rest of us because this is the shit that's going on inside the MAGA bubble right now. It's an interesting idea that war is to come when it's too late, but like in this context, it's just really, really fucking dangerous. I really mean, dangerous. Like maybe an analysis, it's fine, but they're not doing analysis. They're like planning on where to shoot the next missile and that's fucking scary. Also, like, there's nothing, there's nothing China can do that would pose an existential threat to the U.S., except by launching uh, an attack on the U.S. homeland that would ensure that China got destroyed by the U.S. So, like, except for mutually assured destruction, there's nothing China could do that would like be a one-way blow to the nation or the existence of the nation. So what could justify, what is the mythical information that could justify a preventive war with China? I can't think of anything as much as I loathe China. And so like this, this is just the kind of like unicorn, bad guy unicorn thinking that went on in the run up to the Iraq war. The echoes of it, you know, freak me out a bit. The time span of this is pretty insane. Like I was listening to an episode last night, got a bit nostalgic. So I listened to it episode a couple months old goes to see what we were talking about a couple months ago we were talking about whether china would increase tariffs on the united states any further yeah you know we thought that was pretty Jesus. massive and now we're talking about preventative war i'm fucking that's like oh, it's a very 2020 yes 2020 what have you done yeah what well, have I, you done seriously and like, I remember, you know, I'm sort of unfortunately proud of this prediction about decoupling between the U.S. and China, which six months ago, it seemed yeah. obvious to me it was going to get way worse. And it has. But that was not the conventional wisdom, like the conventional wisdom. Six months ago, that was radical. Yes. I remember you thought it was radical. You were like. Yeah, you were you were Heck like yeah. giving me the stink eye. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll call that one. I was I was honestly shocked at how fast after we recorded that that kind of we had a space of episodes. It was like I think two or three episodes where we talked mainly about decoupling, and I was interested but skeptical. And now it's everywhere. It's insane. Yeah, and now the next it's step. So interesting. Yeah, unfortunately, the next step is war, and that's really shitty. And the thing is, like, it's totally irrational to think that, like, a war, to expect a, a war n normally, particularly between nuclear states. But the Trump administration is proving itself insensitive to body counts. Their decision making is not meaningfully weighted or um, conditioned by the idea of, like, large numbers of Americans dying, let alone foreigners dying. So, like, once you remove that variable from the decision for war it's a political calculation about benefits to you right so and war generally benefits the leaders there are exceptions but that's the tendency because it creates a rally around the flag effect and you get to like take extreme measures extreme power etc but yeah so i'm a little freaked out man and now i'm sharing that with you all let's do prediction market where we get vans to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them All right, for Prediction Market this week, we're going to start off with a Taiwan question. 
and it's sort of going off a tweet by uh, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen. Today, I asked the executive one to draw up a humanitarian assistance plan for Hong Kong citizens that lays out clear, complete plans for their residence, placement, employment, and life in Taiwan as soon as possible. Now, the question is, will Taiwan be able to effectively implement this in the face of everything happening at the moment? With so initially, when I saw this question, I didn't get it, but because it's Taiwan's involvement in Hong Kong, so um, if you're to trust the Trump administration, which I should say normally you sh should not, obviously, the, the official claim that Pompeo has made now is that um, Hong Kong has lost its autonomy to China. And the precipitating reason for that is the China's new um, or the Hong Kong's new national security law thanks to China. So I don't think that, so as much as I disagree with the Trump administration, I think it's true that Hong Kong is not politically autonomous anymore or sufficiently mm. autonomous anymore. I do not think that Taiwan will be able to operate freely on behalf of Hong Kong citizens, even in the form of providing aid. And so I, I think that China will prevent Taiwan from even implementing innocent. I mean, this is humanitarian assistance effectively for Hong Kong from Taiwan. Uh, I think China will impede it somehow. Well, yeah, that sounds about China. Now, <laughs> question two, <laughs> will there be any formal action taken by the United States following the removal of Hong Kong's remaining autonomy by the CCP on Thursday? Oh, so... I don't know that Let there will. The yeah, I don't know that there will be any more actions beyond this declaration. Trump on, tw I think it was on Twitter a few days ago. He he made a veiled threat that could have been nothing or nuclear war, and he didn't say specifically what he was talking about. But he said he was going to unveil a big thing that China was not going to like, and it was this. It was just a a masked threat. It oh, looks man. like what the threat was was Pompeo declaring that. The United States decided Hong Kong is no longer autonomous, and that matters for legal reasons because um, it means that the U.S. can impose or has to impose legal restrictions on how U.S. businesses and citizens interact with Hong Kong businesses and citizens. And so the more the U.S. treats Hong Kong as part of, as co-opted by China, the more the restrictions the U.S. is imposing on China apply also to Hong Kong. And so that's kind of a big deal. And it seems like that's what Trump was talking yeah. about. But that's now that's that has happened. And so beyond that, I'm not sure that anything else will happen. I mean, you know, war or whatever, but not by Thursday or not by when, whatever the whatever the deadline is. <laughs> war by Thursday yeah, would be a yeah. fantastic name <laughs> for a spin-off podcast. War by Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like I like that. Question three, will we see a full removal of United States forces from Afghanistan before the upcoming U.S. election? And this is inspired by a New York Times article explaining that this is what the Trump administration really wants and that the Pentagon are even drawing up plans. This is a really hard question because there is no doubt that Trump wants to make this happen. There's also no doubt that he's able to get rolled by the bureaucracy and by interest groups and by Congress like over and over and over and none of those interest groups want to leave Afghanistan. So what I could imagine happening is that Trump puts out messages like this, we're bringing the troops home, we brought the troops home, but actually there's still troops there. Um, and so mm -hmm. the way, like with what happened in Syria, we've withdraw we're withdrawing from Syria, we're getting troops out, we've withdrawn from Syria, and then troops are not only not fully leaving, but like they're going back in. 
Um, yeah. And so he gets he gets to claim the W while giving America the L. I think that's what will happen. Do you think he would like? Obviously, he'd use anything he can. But do you think he'd use this specifically if he gets shut down by like the bureaucracy, like he said? Would he use that as an election ploy to be like, "Look, I'm trying to do stuff, but the liberal elite won't let me leave." In a normal, yeah. So in a normal cycle of an election, that that makes sense. Like you could see making decisions about troops in Afghanistan as like tail wags the dog. In this yeah. environment, I don't think it's important enough. It just doesn't overcome, oh, 100,000 people died on my watch at home, having nothing to yeah. do with the military. Yeah. The gravity of what's going on is just so massive that it makes these things seem pretty small. Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. Okay, so I just had one tweet this week from the man who we're trying to get on the pod, Matt Duss, Bernie Sanders foreign policy advisor. He says, in my experience, quote, D.C. is so nasty these days because people don't socialize enough, end quote, is the opposite of the truth. People socialize a lot, obviously pre-pandemic. The overall effect is that they are then less inclined to criticize the awful corrupt people they've shared a drink with. And I forgot to mention in my opening, David Ignatius, big time fucking pundit, he had this piece in the Washington Post, and that's what Matt Duss is basically responding to. And it, this is very much how Washington operates. It's a go-along-to-get-along culture, and it's very hard to snitch on your friends, which is to say hold them accountable when they invade Iraq. And so that's kind of the moral of the story is like when you build a sort of consensual environment that's bipartisan or that like overlooks politics or transcends politics, it insulates political elites from the consequences of their decisions. Um, and that leads to bad decisions. And that's what Matt Duss is kind of like railing about here. So shout out to Matt Duss. Matt Duss is one yeah, of those yeah. people on Twitter that like I stopped um, pitching ideas to, uh, like for Van for the Stay Off Twitter segment, because I know Van's going to come up with his tweets as well. But I mean, if we're going yeah. to keep plugging him, maybe thinking, we'll just do <laughs> We should have a segment that's like, what did Matt Duss say this week? And then just like, go through it. <laughs> Then he has to come on the show. He can't not. That's right. Don't, don't duck us, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Easy. So I've got a couple of tweets for this week. My first one is from Dr. Andreas Nick, a German politician of the Christian Democratic Union Party. So in this tweet, it reads, For a generation, each and every U.S. ambassador I got to know personally, career diplomat or political appointee alike, used to leave his post as a highly respected figure and trusted friend of Germany. Now someone leaves issuing threats as if he were representing a hostile power, which is pretty damning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's talking about Richard Grenell, who was the U.S. Trump's ambassador to Germany. Big surprise. He was marginally qualified for the job. He was not a politician, really. <laughs> And um, or a foreign policy expert, and he got appointed to be the acting director of national intelligence, despite having zero intelligence background. And he's most known for being a troll on Twitter, even as German ambassador. And so um, he used to harass basically all the Europeans, but especially Germany. The Germans tried to get him um, removed from his post at one point, sort of unsuccessfully. And his his main goal and the reason he was there and he had he basically admitted as much was to sort of coordinate the right wing networks across Europe. 
So he was trying to build uh, what like Dan Nixon would call like a right wing counter order movement, an order that would very look very fascist, be very reactionary, would be counter to NATO, counter to the EU. And it, it would just look it's it would make the European continent look something like Steve Bannon. And that that was his project. And he wasn't good at his job because he's not good at his jobs. But he was he failed up just like McMaster, just like a lot of hawks these days. And so now he's acting director of national intelligence and he's actively declassifying classified shit from the Obama era to throw shade at Susan Rice and other Obama era officials. So feeling good about life. The Germans are pointing out in Gabby's tweet that like he sucked at his fucking job and he did the opposite of what ambassadors are supposed to do, which is like be diplomatic. Yeah, like I think I was really surprised when I saw this tweet because, you know, for like years, you're trying to build up this really good relationship. And for them to finally have snapped like that, I mean, you must have like really pissed them off. On Publicly me. too, right? Yeah. 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 So shout out to German dude. Andreas Nick, sorry. Andreas, <laughs> Dr. Andreas Nick, I mean. He got his PhD and he's now reduced to the German dude. His maybe, I'll do, maybe I'll do the same for uh, the author of our second tweet for the week. Um, it comes from, again, from an unlikely source. So this comes from Dr. Van Jackson, an American dude, who is a senior lecturer at Victoria University of Wellington, amongst other things. I don't know if you guys heard of him, but no, anyway, I his... <laughs> no, never heard I, I think he's got quite a low profile. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who knows? Who can understand his credibility, right? But I thought it'd be an interesting tweet anyway. <laughs> so the tweet um, we picked out for this week is specifically goes, I'm a widely read columnist. For reasons I can't explain, Popeil has invited me to a lavish dinner that his critics associate with an abuse of power and taxpayer funds. But everything seemed above board to me, so now I'm writing to tell you that there's no problem. Thoughts? Yeah. So I did write this. Uh, it's a little bit meta. Um, I'm also sort of proud of this. To be So like when I first put, po I, I posted a version of this tweet and then I deleted it, which I don't do very often. And then I put up this one because it's way snarkier. The first one was more straightforward, finger wagging. Basically, David Ignatius, that Washington Post article I mentioned a, a minute ago that Matt Dust was commenting on. David Ignatius is the dude who I'm fucking subtweeting here. He wrote this column, weekly columnist, right? And it's like, I got invited to Pompeo's James Madison dinners that he hosts at the State Department. They are grand affairs. They are lavish. They are delicious. Multiple course meals. Pompeo's wife showed me all the like memorabilia from the Kennedy administration, yada, yada, yada. And he's like, I don't understand why they invited me, but I'm here to tell you that this is not corruption and that these dinners, there's nothing wrong with them. And all of you critics who say Pompeo is wasting taxpayer funds. I just don't see it. I don't think there's anything to see here. That's what his piece says. Like, I'm barely... I wonder why they invited him. I wonder why. <laughs> it's it's the most unself-aware, <laughs> unself-aware thing I've ever fucking seen from, like, a, a public personality. So all it took was a couple dinners to co-op David Ignatius. So that's who I'm subtweeting here. I thought it was very clever. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it was. I thought it was. Junkets for journalists, yeah. Let's jump into Armchair Analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. Uh, this week we're going to look at an article from War on the Rocks by two scholars, Matthew Fay and Michael Hunziker. And the article is called No Sure Victory. 
the Marines' new force design plan, and the politics of implementation. A bit of background, because this is out of left field. In 2019, the Marine Corps Commandant introduced a new plan. It was basically building a smaller force that's interoperable with the Navy that operates mainly in littoral environments. It's a, it's a huge change from the status quo of the Marines. A, a DC staffer said at the time that the blood of sacred cows is all over this thing. So it's massive. And it's been interesting tracking it since then. And the point of the piece is to track it since it's then about how such a transformational plan can actually get implemented in a, a really rivalrous intra-service context. So there's plans in that plan to divest from tanks and advanced, advanced fighter jets, which is going to piss off the defense industrial complex. Mm -hmm. The plan as a whole is divesting from $700 million in budget areas just over the next year, which is going to piss off kind of parochial internal interests. Mm -hmm. And because the Marines is such a big institution and because it has so many different little groups and communities it's going to be really tough for a commandant that has as they say in the piece limited bandwidth and a short tenure and so as a response they recommend one protecting careers of reform-minded junior officers to kind of give the plan longevity in the minds of those individuals and then secondly building a coalition of like-minded scholars officials and congressional leaders but given how big of a change it is those two recommendations when i read the piece didn't seem like enough and i think it's interesting on a, a broader point because it's a good insight into the internal issues of institutional politics in general and it's really important for progressive thinkers to understand how you can win the ideas battle but you still have to fight that institutional battle and i'm not quite sure how you how you win there so i was, yeah. I was keen to get your thoughts man yeah, so it's a it's a great piece in the Marine Corps Commandant's idea for changing how Marines fight and what they fight with is extremely like forward leaning, innovative. Uh, I I love what he is trying to do. I have doubts about how successful it will be, largely for reasons that are raised in the piece itself. But basically, like for background, there's a belief, and it, the piece mentions this too. There's a, a belief that prevails that each military service, Air Force, Navy, Marines, Army, that when they compete for congressional dollars, when they submit their budgets to Congress, technically it's all submitted as one package, the Department of Defense Appropriations budget, right? And that goes to Congress kind of like wholesale, but it's compiled from each individual military service. So each service says what it needs, and then each service lobbies Congress on its own behalf. And so the way, and so historically, the conventional wisdom is like among defense experts is this is a good thing. It creates an environment of competition. Competition makes cream rise to the top. Um, and there are examples of like military capabilities in the past that have been useful that arose because of this inter-service competition for, for budget. The problem is one that contributes I'm, I'm skeptical of that position, for one thing. The defense bloat, the overspending as we know it, and the, the concept of like overmatch, that we fight wars by outkilling the other side. I think all of that is a function of inter-service rivalry or intra-service rivalry where each branch of the military is trying to maximize what it gets, and Congress actually has incentives to appease all of them. And so this is why we end up in a situation where sometimes the military will say, well, we don't need... Uh, to fund A-10s anymore. And then Congress will be like, well, actually too bad. Here's some more A-10s for you. 
And the military is like, well, wh- wait a minute, we didn't need that. And so then we're because of Congress, because, uh, you know, they their districts have the plants that are building parts for that war machine or whatever, that cor- sort of corrupt motivation is what determines Congress funding things that the military says it doesn't need. But it's also that process that leads to Congress funding things that the military does need, you know, corruption all the way down. The question is, as the corrupt process works itself out, are we at least like training, manning and equipping the the joint force for what it needs to be able to do and be able to have? The reason why the Marine Corps Commandant thing is like so novel one, he's saying he, he wants a smaller, more nimble, more lethal force, and presumably that costs less money than the current force. And he's saying specifically how to do it, how to cut. And this is really, this is how um, your budget submissions should work. And so I think one of the reasons why people like me are enamored of this, this new um, operating concept for the Marines is that it's working as it should. It's like the Marine Corps budget submission is going to reflect what they believe they need in order to prevail in the conflicts they think they're going to have to fight, where they're going to have to fight them, right? And so in theory, what you say you need in the budget that you submit should reflect the, your, a realistic assessment of your warfighting environment, a realistic assessment of how you plan to win that, that battle. And so that's what he's doing. He's not making crazy assumptions that like wish away certain Chinese weapons. And so the sheer strategy involved in what he's doing is something that people like me fall in love with. The problem is, in theory, this helps reduce the defense budget and increase deterrence capabilities and increase presence in in Asia in a way that is um, reliable and restrained. So like we're we're more part of Asia rather than like dominating it if he has his way. The problem is that if this works how all other new concepts work, for warfighting, it's going to be an addition of new capabilities without stripping away the old ones. And other serv- other military services who are submitting normal military budgets are still going to get all the shit that they want, even though they too should be developing new concepts that complement what the Marines are doing. So it's like if the, if the Air Force and the Navy, just an example, are putting all of their budget like if if they're spending their budget and asking for massive amounts of money to fund long-range bomber programs and things that deal with the china threat without needing the marines but then the marines are submitting a budget submission for how to deal with the china threat without needing the air force to have long-range bombers for example then everybody's just getting everything it's a christmas tree and so the illusion on the front end that you're actually reducing the budget and and modernizing the force Actually, that's a bunch of fucking it ends up being trickery because the politics of the situation don't allow it. So it's just everybody. It's just more, more, more. And that's how you end up with this massive bloated machine. So I'm skeptical that this can become real, except in the overmatch sense where we just buy all of the above. We fund all of the above, you know. How so, do you, is there a way of sparing a change in that? Would there be a way of spurring army, air force, maybe space force to um, to engage in radical new thinking? So there's there's two paths that are possible to make this real and have the other services adapt as well. One is what they say in the piece, which is like you form insider outsider coalitions. You do bring in the intellectuals to intellectualize the entire project, but also to be a public voice to justify it. 
and to give give a frame and a bone structure to it so that it gets to, and then eventually it gets it trickles down into talking points that um, congressional representatives use and you get people who would benefit the congressional members who have the the plants for the the new short-range missiles that the marines would develop or long-range missiles um, that would be part of their plan you get the people who benefit from this new operational concept to become its advocates and then they are in competition with uh, the status quo, you know, forces in Congress. So it's it's possible to do that. It seems kind of unlikely. Why, you know, like the the easiest thing to do is just to do the all of the above funding thing. You know, the other way of of dealing with this is, um, shit. I just got distracted. I don't know. What's the other way of dealing with this, guys? <laughs> <laughs> that was a real. No, there's no better example of why institutional politics is hard than the, the last thirty seconds of the podcast. <laughs> oh, the other, the other pathway. Um, maybe we keep all that in. Who knows? The other pathway <laughs> to change is actually like proof of failure. So. It, it's tragic, but the the most sure way to force innovation is to have a catastrophic failure of the status quo. So it could take a splendid little war with China to prove that we get our asses handed to us like the Russians against the Japanese in 1904. You know what I mean? 1905. And it could take licking our wounds to make us wake up. Um, and hopefully it doesn't, right? The, what the Marines are trying to do is get ahead of that. And so... This is why I'm skeptical, because it's like either we're going to have to experience the loss of a war to prove to us that we're not adapting to the, the current environment, or we're going to have to rely on this insider-outsider log-rolling game. But the, actually, that's not the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance is like, well, you give the Marines some of what they want, but you don't cut their forces as much as they say they need, and then you give everybody else everything else too. So that's where I'm skeptical. All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. So this one is from Petrophile. I have heard you talk shit about the war in Iraq a few times on the podcast. Do you have a problem with how it was handled or that we were there at all? Well, good question, actually. So I have a problem with both, I guess. It was handled poorly. The whole debathification, this is all, it feels like ancient history now, but like debathification, basically firing the Iraqi Saddam Hussein's military and like cutting them loose, letting them become, you know, basically a counter army or insurgents. Huge, huge strategic problem. The way we withdrew from Iraq helped create the Islamic State. Lots, the, obviously the decision to go in in the first place, huge fucking problem. So it was not, executed well if you were going to fight a war of choice it could have been fought more effectively there's no question about that but it didn't need to be fought at all the the reality was like deterrence of saddam hussein was holding uh, we were operating a no-fly zone over parts of iraq that were working saddam was not a, like a nice guy but he was not an aggressive actor that required to be deposed it required a war to deal with him and of course, the pretexts of the war were false. So, um, like he he didn't he wasn't building nuclear weapons, right? So I don't know. Like I have a problem with everything to do with the Iraq War. The second question was from Thaddeus Schmeckel. I love that name, <laughs> Thaddeus Schmeckel. 
why is China triggering a major border war with India? Well, so we talked about this a little bit up top uh, yeah. of the episode. I, I mean, it's not a major border war yet, but it certainly could be. One of my concerns, like lingering concerns, is that China might actually be a revisionist power in the realist sense. And the PLA is this grand army, but it's a grand army that is basically untested. And so if you're like a military elite in, in China, you need you need road testing. You're the rising power, right? And you've been talking all kinds of shit about how effective you are as a military. And you've been gradually building out expeditionary capabilities to like go fight abroad. So you need to do something at some point. And the problem is like if you do anything that will involve the US, you know, you could be talking about World War Three. So like India, in some ways, uh, this is not throwing shade at India, but like they seem like maybe a soft target for the PLA. In and I'm not saying that would like China would win that war, but in relation to the United States, it's like a softer target, I guess. And so this is not a war yet, but I'm concerned that it could be because I don't think that India is going to like back down from China. The second question is from anonymous: How does publishing a book work? I'm not an academic, but I have possibly a good idea for one. A uh, very good question. So um, publishing a book involves usually having an agent if you want it to be a book that sells copies. If it's a book that's like an academic book or with a university press, you can usually go straight to the publisher. The problem I've seen is like publishers, whether they're academic publishers or trade presses, they, they are playing a numbers game. They estimate how many copies of a book they think you will sell. And they've got, they've all got some magic algorithm for that. And it's based on like, I mean, it's magic, so who knows, but it, it definitely takes into account weird shit. Like where have you published before? What's your track record? What is your public profile? They look at your, your audience reach. They literally look at things like, do you have a podcast? Do you have a TV show? That kind of stuff. Um, how many followers do you have? And because they that's part of the calculation of like your ability to promote and sell the book. Yeah. And if you don't have any of that, it's it's going to be an expectation for your first book anyway, heavily how desirable or good is the argument being made and how good is the writing. You can like build up a public profile for yourself and then approach a publisher or you can just write short pieces everywhere until a publisher approaches you or if you can get an agent because you have a good idea for a book like a good book proposal written you know you can start pitching agents and see if one will pick you up but you know i've only written academic books up to this point and so and frankly the last book i did the publisher approached me so i just got lucky and then i'm actually i've got two books going right now and one of them is under contract with yale I'll, i'm going to talk more about that later and I'm sort of working on them simultaneously, which I don't know if that's a good idea. But the, that's sort of how the publishing process works. And so, like, if you if it's your first book, you want to have a manuscript in hand that's like a draft that's done, ideally. But if it's a book that's intended to sell a lot of copies, like a bestseller, trade press, you can have just a really good proposal that is like a 20-page outline of the book, maybe a sample chapter or two. And if it's good, an agent might pick it up. And like, that's how a lot of people get started. Um, and if you get an advanced contract for a book, which is like a contract before you've actually written the book, um, the pay is usually, it's like 
one-third they give you up front, one-third they give you when you deliver the full manuscript, and then one-third when the book is actually released. The, the question is like very broad, but like hopefully I've answered it with all of that somewhere in there. So the final question is from, is from Alex Orte, or Orte, I'm just going to stick with that. Sorry, Alex, who is a friend of the poll. Do you think that CCP will retaliate the White House says United States strategic approach to the People's Republic of China, other than the rhetoric from the foreign ministry slash ambassadors? So I don't, there's a, there's a tit for tat happening with China right now. And it's not clear how much each side's action is based on the immediate thing that the other side did. They're just both driving toward more aggressive measures toward each other, more more confrontation, right? More more threats, more insults, more tariffs, and uh, more lobbying of other capitals around the world, other countries. So in that context, the United States drops this, you know, quote-unquote strategic approach to the PRC, and it lays out, it's basically like, uh, you know, a containment document of China, but it doesn't say anything specific in it that's like too novel, like too new. It is a sort of aggressively worded document though. And so like, I don't, I don't expect anything from China in direct response to this, but I do expect that it like the rivalry will continue and sort of gradually escalate. Yeah. Nice. yeah and there is a second part to his question. Okay. Is, um, and secondly, how would one go about getting an internship on the pod? <laughs> Good Three liters of fresh blood. And... <laughs> you have to sell your soul. Have you read Das Kapital? So, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Not a Marxist. <laughs> um, there it is. So, there, there's not like any clear process. What I don't want to happen is like uh, somebody comes in and does not have a clear, you know, there's not a clear vision for like what they will specifically do because we have like enough on air people it seems like for now and so it would be like back end internship back end work and we could always use more help with that but before bringing anyone into the fold i would want to have a clear sense of like okay what is the scope of expectation like of do like what is it that you would hope to do and then what is it that you could do that would help us and is there a win set there is there like a win-win that's available because the pod definitely needs help and supporters in lots of different ways. So free labor is a fucking great thing, but <laughs> the expectations have to be aligned properly though. Right. And I don't want it to be just like this open-ended thing where it's like, you're part of our community, but you don't do anything like that would not be a benefit to anybody. So um, that's a vague answer, I guess, but. Yeah, I will say this. Anybody who wants to intern for the podcast or like want to do stuff to help the podcast, if if you want to pitch what you might do for us or what you'd be willing to do to like help us out, I'm all ears because there's no money here. And if you want to make us bigger, better, badder, that's great. So, yeah, my email is my email. Also, ask me anything at undiplomaticpodcast.com. Um, yeah, we'll see what happens. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic. Uh, we're seeing the coffees. We're loving the coffees, and we're appreciating you. And WPR.pub slash undiplomatic for the World Politics Review Newsletter, our sponsor. Catch you next time. Peace.